Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 207th episode the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Lindsay Elwood Getz. Lindsay is the founder of Elwood and Getz, an independent RA based in Athens, Georgia, that oversees nearly $365 million in assets under management for 375 affluent clients. What's unique about Lindsay, though, is the way she launched her advisory firm within a year of graduating from the Texas Tech Financial Planning Program as an undergrad and has been able to steadily build over the past 15 years to a successful multi-advisor firm. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Lindsay first launched her advisory firm, the pain of only getting two or three new clients in her entire first year of launching in a new city where she had no prior connections while relying on a spouse's stable income to make ends meet, how the firm generated early opportunities by building a relationship with an estate planning attorney as a center of influence who was ultimately able to refer some initial clients, and the way Lindsay was able to leverage being fee-only into not only a value proposition for clients, but also as a niche to differentiate from other advisory firms in her local market. We also talk about the way Elwood and Getz has been able to build over the years with a heavy reliance on referrals, the proactive gift-giving that Lindsay has built into the culture of the firm to truly distinguish its depth of connection with clients, the client reference program that Lindsay developed to help support word-of-mouth discussion of her services among clients and prospects, and how Lindsay has focused on the details of the experience of coming to their office as a way to show their attention to detail. Because as Lindsay puts it, when clients could see how much you're focused on the details of even how their drinks are presented or the office space is conducted, they'll be more confident you're taking care of the details in their financial plan too. And be starting to listen to the end where Lindsay shares how the firm evolved from an individual advisor to a team structure, accelerated after Lindsay became a mother and experienced firsthand the squeeze of trying to be a lead advisor and a new parent at the same time, how the firm is built with a heavy focus on hiring young talent that grows from interns to full-time advisors, and why even as someone who launched her own firm as a 20-something, Lindsay still emphasizes the importance of paying your dues and taking the time to get some experience in your early years. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Lindsay Elwood Getz. Welcome, Lindsay Elwood Getz, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be here. I'm really excited about today's conversation and 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 sharing some of the the journey that you've had as an advisor. I know you you came through you know, one of the early financial planning undergraduate programs and within like a year or two later were out on your own had hung your own shingle building your own firm and now almost 15 years later are still going with that firm and and I just kind of find that a a, a fascinating story into itself because I, I have to admit the irony actually is when I talk to younger students coming out of financial planning programs and and what to do, I basically tell them not to do what you <laughs> did, which is go and like hang your own shingle as a, as a like early mid 20 something straight out of school to get going because it, it is so hard and so brutal for most trying to do that. But you know, you you did it, you you are a survivor of it. So you know, with I guess a small asterisk about survivor bias, 
I'm I'm just really excited to hear and share the story of like what you did and how you did this and how you made this work starting your own firm almost directly out of school. I know you did a I think a brief stint somewhere else and then went and hung your own shingle. So love to just talk about like what does that journey look like as you're coming out of school and and thinking about starting your own firm. Yeah, no, I mean it wasn't easy. And I think probably all of my friends and family thought the same thing that you thought in terms of, you know, you shouldn't be doing this now. This is kind of crazy. Although most of them didn't say it, but you could kind of sense that underlying sentiment. Oh, Lindsay. You know, oh, that's so good. Good for you. If you're going to try it, this is the time. You have time to recover from a failure. (laughs) What most people probably don't know about me is that I'm super competitive, like the type of competitive where like I pretend I'm not competitive, you know, because I'm so competitive. I don't want other people to know because that gives them an edge. So actually, every time kind of somebody said that, it just kind of made me more sure that that's what I wanted to do. Oh, because now it wasn't just about starting your firm. It was about proving them wrong. (laughs) Yeah, it was like doubling down and proving people wrong. Yeah, that, that was absolutely what it was about. Yeah. And so my partner, Joe Getz, you know, we we did it together. So I, I have to say that it wasn't just me by myself, but I, you know, it's much easier when you have one other person that's kind of in it with you. Yeah. So I don't know, but I'm excited to talk about it as well. And we'll probably have some fun conversations ahead of us. So, so take us back to the beginning, I guess, like, where did you go to school? What led you to financial planning in the first place? Was this a like mm-hmm. growing up, I always wanted to be a financial planner, went and found a financial planning program and launched my firm? Or was it a little bit more serendipitous in the path that led you to financial planning? No, it was it was serendipitous for sure. So I grew up in Wyoming and ended up at Texas Tech, who, you know, of course, you know, has a great financial planning program. I ended up there because my grandparents lived in New Mexico. And so it was far away from home, but also I could still drive to see my grandparents if I needed somebody. And also I could go to Texas Tech for the cheapest amount, basically, because I got scholarships to be able to go there. I changed my major, I'm sure, about three or four times. I think I was pre-optometry at one point. And then I think my dad thought pharmacy might be a good fit. And so then I changed it to that. And I can't remember. There was like another one in there somewhere. And so I guess the reason I changed from all of that, I took a like an honors chemistry class and it was awful, like just awful, you know, like some things come easy to you, right? Like just different people have different skill sets and right. whatever. Chemistry is not one of mine. Which I guess if you're, if you're going to be in pharmacology, like that's sort of a problem if you really don't like chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. Like any sort of pre-med, whatever, like you probably need to like chemistry. Otherwise it's just kind of a long road ahead of you. So, so anyway, I I took that college class. I think I ended up getting, I don't know if I might've gotten a C in that class. You know, I hardly ever got a B. So like, that's a big deal for me to get a C, you know, and trying hard. And so I went to the Texas Tech Career Center and I took a like a Scantron, essentially like a test where they match your personality with a career. Okay. And the counselor who, you know, looking back on it, he's probably a graduate student. I don't I don't know who this person was, but he looks at my test and he looks at me and he says, you know, I think you should think about financial planning. They have a really good major here. (laughs) Okay. Was there a particular reason, like, 
you're good with numbers or you seem to want to work with people or? Probably so. I don't remember all of those details. You know, I mean, I think probably all of that was true. I mean, and he listed maybe, I don't know, he might have said a teacher or something, but I was like, I don't want to be a teacher. And and so he mentioned financial planning and and I have always like business kind of math, like that's always been my thing. So I left there and I went straight to wherever you go to change your major. And I ended up in the financial planning program. So that's kind of how that worked. But yeah, he probably had no idea, you know, how much he was dictating this person's life who just yeah, like in his the funny ways our entire career trajectory gets changed because a graduate student who was doing volunteer career counseling hours read your Scantron and gave you some feedback. <laughs> yes. And they had just heard of this program earlier that morning or whatever, you know, I don't know. But it makes you think about things. It's like, well, I don't know. I mean, my life could have gone, gone so many different directions. It went this one. I don't know. But but it was good. So you transition into the the financial planning program. So what like what was it like when you when you got there and started getting into this education and seeing what this financial planning thing was. Gosh. Okay. Let me try to remember some of my early classes. I don't know. It was a really good fit for me. I mean, it's just, you know, kind of like I said earlier, chemistry didn't come easy at all, but like business and economics and those types of things just do. And so that makes you feel like you're, you're in the place you need to be you know, where you can like study things you're interested in and they also come easy to you. It was like a dramatic difference from my chemistry class to the to the financial planning program. And like even now thinking back on it, because, you know, Joe, my partner is faculty at UGA. And so they have a, a financial planning program there that's also very good. But it's just different. Like when we went to Texas Tech, it was just it felt like a family, which was really nice, you know, and there were expectations and all the students like went to events. And I think like the student FBA, you know, thing that they have, everybody was expected to go to that. And you knew everybody and you were expected to be involved. And it was just, it was really a special place. So, and of course I met Joe there as well. So that, that was nice. So as you're going through the, the financial planning program, like were you at the time immersing into like, I'm going to be a financial planner. I'm excited to be a financial planner. Was this mostly just the, these classes are neat. I'm kind of having fun with these classes and then we'll see afterwards what we want to do. Like, did you, did you already know at that point, I'm going to go hang my shingle and be a, and be an advisor? Well, no, I don't think I ever thought that I would hang my own shingle. Like that was never a thought. I think I thought I would go work for a bigger company like a Vanguard or a Fidelity and then later on in the program, you know, it was like I'd go work for like an event skiing cats, which, you know, I did for a year or a firm like that. If he only I really wanted to go to. So. So, yeah. So I don't think I was just thinking, well, these are fun classes and it'll be fine for now. I think I, I mean, I've always been very kind of goal oriented. So. So when I got into it, it was like I was in it. So as you were then approaching graduation, it's like, OK, you're your school days are coming to an end. Like we're getting to that next stage of life where we have to go find, find a job and actually like go, go do this, go do something, earn, earn a living, be productive members of society. What was going on as you were approaching graduation and trying to figure out, okay, what is my first career step going to be? Yeah. Well, I remember interviewing a few different places 
But ultimately, I ended up just kind of making a list of a few women financial planners that I thought would be good mentors. And so Dina Katz was one of those. And so that's why I ended up kind of going and applying with them. And I can't remember, I think maybe they were my, they must have been maybe my first choice for an internship because the way, okay, so how did this work? So I was supposed to do my internship the summer before my senior year. But then, and I don't know why I did this, but I ended up taking the CFP exam that summer instead. And then I swapped it. So like, I remember having to talk to Dina Katz and say, hey, would it be okay if instead of doing an internship this summer, could I come in the spring to do it? And she was, you know, supportive and fine with that. I think she probably laughed thinking, you're not going to be able to pass your CFP exam, but... So you were doing the CFP exam like summer between junior and senior. Yeah. Yeah. And I, again, I don't remember why I did that because that seems a little weird, right? Like, why would I do that? seems like, but I remember Dr. Hampton had to write a letter saying that I had had the courses, but I hadn't had capstone yet. So I had sat, you know, I'd taken all the courses that you have to take to sit for the CFP. So I was eligible to do it, but she had to write a letter, I guess, to say that I would be taking the capstone class so it would be okay, like to excuse me somehow. So for whatever reason, I did that. Yeah. And so then I had an internship kind of lined up for after my coursework. So I finished up my coursework in December, and then I started my internship at Even Skiing Cats in January. And so I didn't really have a job. You know, I mean, I'd finished my coursework, but I had a few month internship that I hoped, I guess, would turn into a job and it, and it did, but I didn't know that it would, you know. Okay. So, so interesting sequencing. So you were, I guess, almost done after junior year. So CFP exam the summer after junior year, capstone course, sort of spring of senior year, but then you were a December grad done in December, got an internship in January into spring semester, and then that kind of morphed in a job from there? Well, I graduated in May because you had to have an internship to graduate, I think, at the time. Oh, okay. So my graduation wasn't until May, but my, you know, all my classes were done for the most part, except for the internship in December. Okay. So you got the internship at Eventsky and Katz, had to do it in order to, uh, to graduate anyways. And then what happened by the time you got through the internship and and graduated. Well, so let's see. Well, this is kind of funny. So, so you know, I ended up going to Vinsky and Katz because I really wanted to work with Dina Katz. But my timing was not great because when I was leaving to go to Miami, she was transitioning to Texas Tech to kind of teach for them. I guess. Oh, right. Because after Vinsky and Katz did all their building in Miami, Harold and Dina went mm-hmm. to. Uh, went to Lubbock and started teaching at Texas Tech. So you were going east just as they were coming west. Yeah. Well, here, I don't know how it worked exactly. They must have kind of done it a little bit gradually because Harold was there most of the time that I was there. And Dina was there some, but she wasn't there a lot. So anyway, so that whole experience was a little bit different than I expected it to be, but it ended up being really great. I worked really closely with a woman named Dina Kelly, actually, and she just really taught me a lot of stuff about, you know, follow through. And this is logistically how you help service a client. And so I was only at Evenski and Katz a year, you know, including the internship and everything. But but I learned so much being there, just like anybody does probably their first first job out of school. 
but especially just the people that work there. Dave Moran was another person. I don't know that if you know him or not that was there at the same time as me. And so they were just, and Harold was great as well, you know, just all really good mentors. And, and I even, it's kind of funny, Joe and I joke every once in a while, if we're not sure what to do about something, and this has been the case over the past 15 years, if we're ever not sure what to do about, especially an investment kind of situation or like financial planning situation, be like, okay, what would Harold do in this situation? (laughs) So, so it's kind of neat to have that to, to, fall back on. I'm fascinated though, that like the way you found your path to events game cats originally was you made a list of female financial planners. You were hoping to have a chance to mentor under, and that was how you made your, like your hit list of firms to then, I guess, reach out to them and find out like, are they hiring? Do they have internships? How do I get in the door? Mm -hmm. Was events game cats actually like openly hiring for interns or did you have to like contact them and say, Hey, I'm, I'm Lindsay and I'm at Texas tech and I'd love to be an intern for your firm. Will you like make this opportunity for me? (laughs) I know it seems kind of funny now. Well, I think Ivinsky and Katz, they were known for having Texas tech student interns. So like Aubrey Moore, I know interned there before I did. So I think I knew that they had a history of hiring Texas tech students, but at the same time, there wasn't an opening per se. So I think what I did is I, I'm pretty sure I emailed Dina directly. And then I think Dina knew the Hamptons really well, Gordon and Vicky. And I'm pretty sure she probably called them and, and was like, who is this person? And, and should I talk to them or not? You know, kind of knowing how it works now that I'm past all of that. That's probably what happened. And so I remember Gordon Hampton just kind of, he called me to his office and, and asked me about sending the email and stuff. And it just kind of gave me a little pep talk, I guess, about it. So then Dina scheduled a call with me. And so I remember being in my apartment and I had, you know, I was so nervous for this call, Michael, like so nervous. I had these index cards, like all spread out with possible questions she could ask me. It's like, I wow. spent probably, like, like I spent so much prep. time. Yes. No, I mean, I like legit did a lot of prep for this because I really wanted it, you know? So anyway, she calls or I call her, I think. And maybe she had gone to the bathroom. So then I called back for our time. Because there's nothing better than like building up in your head, getting ready to do this big interview. And then you call and no one answers. And you're like, I'm just leaving a message because I thought I was supposed to have an interview with Dina now. I know. It was awful. I was like, okay, I'll just call back in a couple of minutes. So I called back. And then I think she asked me like maybe one question. And then she just said, okay, well, when can you start? (laughs) I was like, but wait, wait, don't you want me to to, like ask me just a couple more things? Like, no, I have a lot of answers prepared. You need (laughs) to ask me these questions because I spent a lot of time preparing these answers. No, but at the same time, I was like equal relieved that she didn't ask me any of them, you know? So it was like, okay, fine. I kind of, that's good. We'll just move on. So that's kind of how that worked. And then later on, so that was before I sat for the CFP exam, I guess that I did all of that. So, and then I had to call back and say, you know, would it be okay if I did my internship at a different time period, which hopefully they weren't too frustrated about that. They probably didn't care too much, but so anyway, so that's that's kind of how all of that worked leading up to Evinsky and Katz. But yeah, once I was there, you know, I was kind of, they had, let's see, I guess they had three 
person teams at the time. I'm not sure how they do things now, but I was like the third person on the team. So I worked with Dina Kelly and Dave Moran the most, but I also got the opportunity to sit in like investment proposal meetings with Harold. And that was just an amazing experience, you know, to just see how all of that works, you know, that, that soon out of school. I mean, I don't think I even realized at the time how neat of an opportunity that was. Very cool. So, so you like, you're in Eventsky Katz, getting all this exposure to planning work and sitting in on some client meetings and investment proposals and going through it, but you were only there for a year, I think you said. So what happened that your journey ended after a year there? Well, so this is something I struggle with too, but as, as a now employer, right? But I followed a boy, <laughs> I followed a boy to Georgia and I left, I left Miami. And so, you know, Joe was finishing up his PhD at, at Texas Tech, I guess the year that I was there. And then he accepted a, a position in Georgia in Athens to kind of start their financial planning program. And so, so we moved here together. That's how that worked. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So so you made the transition following the boy who you met in the financial planning program at Texas Tech. Right. Right. Okay. So I guess like branched out for a year because you went to Miami for school or you went to Miami for Bensky and Katz. He stayed in Lubbock, Texas for another year to finish up the PhD. Then he finished the PhD got the job to start building the University of Georgia financial planning program. And then once he went to Athens, Georgia to build the program, you left Evensky and Katz to go there and the and you know reunite the couple. Oh, right. Yep. So it like play this out for me. It's like you're you're at a well-known successful advisory firm, but you're leaving to follow the boy. These are the decisions we make life sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're going to Athens, Georgia, which is maybe not quite the hotbed of financial planning firm opportunities, particularly since there was no financial planning program there yet. So like, was this the point of just saying, well, I guess we're going to launch a firm or I want to launch a firm or like I've interviewed at every firm I can find in Athens and I don't want to work in any of these. So I guess I have to launch a firm. Like, how did this work on the on the Athens transition? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's kind of kind of that, right? So we moved here. And, you know, of course, I kind of looked before we moved. But yeah, getting here and then seeing the firms that were available, there were no there were no fee only firms. So my choice was I could drive to Atlanta, which is an hour and 15 minutes away, probably, depending on where you go in Atlanta. Or we could kind of start our own thing. But I knew that, I mean, I didn't want to go, I didn't want to do the commission thing and like the salesman kind of thing. I just, that wasn't the route that I wanted to take. Just because I like the cleanness of fee only, you know, I like just not having to kind of worry about that. And that's what even skiing cats was, right? So that's kind of what I was used to. And so here there were, there were a few kind of RIA firms but, and I didn't even go interview with them, I guess, because they weren't fee only. I don't know why I didn't. It kind of seems like we would have at least checked it out, you know, but I think Joe was kind of excited about starting our own thing. I didn't really think too much about driving to Atlanta. I mean, that's just too far. Like I didn't want to be driving that much. On a daily basis. On a daily basis. Yeah. yeah. I just couldn't. So anyway, so we just made the decision to do that. 
And so you did. And so and like so we did. Yeah. Left ENK, moved to Athens and said, okay, Joe and I were we're starting this firm. Right. And so so at first the first few years, we actually kind of worked with one of our former professors, Joe Toombs, had a firm called or and still does it's called amicus financial advisors so when we first started an office we we kind of affiliated with them and that we opened an amicus office in athens so it was like you know we were getting the clients and kind of opening an office that way but we had you know their kind of support to some extent oh interesting so so basically you didn't you didn't actually start your own like standalone ria entity, you essentially became like IAR's representatives under Amicus's RIAs? Yeah. So the way they work, you know, each advice, it's kind of like we were IAR's, you're right, is, is how that worked. But the offices were very independent. And so like I still had my clients, you know, that I worked on, but they would do like the compliance filings. But what's interesting is, so he was kind of starting that at the same time as we were starting ours. Like, I I don't know how the dates kind of work. They didn't have very many clients when we decided to open up an office here. From their time, then, it was probably appealing for for you to come under the umbrella because if you brought and contributed any revenue, like, it would help cover their overhead compliance costs. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other piece was that I was doing all of the plan writing, for like if anybody in Amicus brought in any clients, like I would write the financial plan for the advisor. So that kind of gave me some like hourly revenue, right? Because like at first you have zero clients. So you have to wait until you get the first client <laughs> to be able right. to write the plan for them. And so that lasted. So this was 2006. And so we were, we just kind of gradually built up clients. We probably got maybe two or three clients the first year in 2006. I mean, this is not a fast process when you kind of start trying to, to get your own clients and, and build up a firm. Yeah. As I've kind of become fond of saying, like the, the first year is really sucky for everyone. Like we all try to find the shortcuts, but yeah. it's awful for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Like the first year is horrible. The second year is basically a repeat of the first year. Usually by the third year, there's like a little bit of momentum. Like one of those clients from the first year actually sends you a referral by the third year. It's like, right. oh, okay. Like now I see how this growth with referrals thing works because it doesn't work when you're getting started because you have no clients to refer you. No, it doesn't. And especially moving to a new town. I mean, we didn't know anybody. And so Joe ended up making some, you know, just some friends and things at UGA, people that he worked with. So we had some kind of acquaintances that way. And that's actually what led us to finding kind of our first office. Because like at first, we didn't even have an office space, right? And of course, you're coming out of pocket for that because you have no clients, so you have no revenue. But at the same time, you need an office to be able to get clients to have revenue because this was 2006, not 2020. So you couldn't just set up something online and work from home. So anyway, so one of the, they had found an adjunct faculty member locally, an attorney that was going to teach the estate planning class for UGA. And so we ended up going by his office and kind of meeting with him. And we had a really good conversation about kind of what we were planning to do. And, and he ended up by the end of the conversation, he was like, well, you know, I have an office that you could rent. And so I rented this one office from him. And we stayed there until 2018. 
wow. shared offices with this attorney. So the way it worked, there were kind of two sides of the building. And so it, the first couple of years, I just rented the first office, you know, that was just enough room for me. And there was a shared conference room. So, you know, if I had clients coming in, which wasn't very often, I would just kind of coordinate that with the receptionist and, and I'd use the conference room. But I was able to put a sign up and kind of do all that kind of stuff. And then over the years, we just started kind of adding offices. So by 2018, we'd kind of taken over half of the half of the building and using the offices. And this was actually the, the attorney that referred us our very first client and probably is responsible for, oh gosh, I don't know, 15% of our business right now. So he just ended up being, you know, he's a really good friend now, but also just, I mean, it takes a lot of faith to refer a client to somebody that you know is just starting and has no clients. Like that was kind of a big, a big thing that he did for us. So, so anyway, we're really thankful that, that that kind of ended up working out. But it it does, I think, reinforce the interesting approach from a business development perspective that, you know, one of the ways that advisors get clients, including both early on and ongoing basis is, is building relationships with so-called centers of influence, like people who themselves have opportunities to meet clients and potentially refer clients. And one of the big ones has always been either, you know, accountants, CPAs, or attorneys, particularly estate planning attorneys, because they often have kind of a a transactional business. So they meet lots of people, which means they may occasionally meet people who might be good people for you to meet. So, so it sounds like that actually ended up being a big, a big piece of the early growth. You know, I think it's a hard thing for advisors, especially starting out, you know, it's like, it just feels like, how do you, how do you go introduce yourself to an estate planning attorney? I mean, that's intimidating <laughs> to have to go do yeah. Like even right now, if I had to go do that, I'd be kind of like not looking forward to it. But I think if you can make it just kind of more personal, right? I mean, I didn't ask him for clients. You know, I just did a good job of like checking in with him and being pleasant around the office. And, you know, we'd have good conversations and things. And it just kind of, you develop an organic relationship. It doesn't have to be anything that's forced. Like, I'll send you a client if, if you send me one. Which is a lot of times I think, I mean, that's what I've always thought about. Like when people are like, well, go go create some centers of influence and make some connections. It just feels so kind of artificial a little bit. It might just be the way that I'm doing it. I've just found for me, like I just, I have to go into relationships like that thinking that I'm not going to get anything out of it. And that's actually when they're successful. When you're just sincere about, oh, this person has, you know, really neat perspective and maybe, you know, I can help them out. It's just kind of a different framework, I guess. So, so piece together this like first year or two for me, you're, you tucked in under amicus so that you wouldn't have to quite do all the grinding of, you know, all the compliance work and everything from scratch. You could, you could layer into them. So with amicus, they were actually not fee only, which is interesting because, you know, I said that I didn't work with any of the other RIAs in town because they weren't fee only. But they were fee only on the investment side. So, but I actually had my my insurance license for the time that I was with Amicus to be able to sell term life insurance. I think I had a couple of clients that bought long term care policies because that was when they had the you know unlimited benefit period and, and that type of thing. So yeah, so I mean it was it was a great 
it was a really good learning experience. And it was nice to kind of have their backup, right? Because if I have a client come in, I don't quite know how to handle the situation. I had Joe Toombs to call. I had Jesse Longoria was just really a great mentor too. And so I was able to just kind of build up my expertise that way when my confidence probably wasn't quite where it should be. You know, I, I could fall back on these people if I needed to. And so that was really great. And so over time, the clients just kind of built up. And so I guess it was in 2000, the end of 2010 is when we decided to part ways. And, and that was all very amicable. Yeah. No pun intended there. Amicable and amicus, but yeah, amicably parted from amicus because yeah. would there be any other way to part from amicus? <laughs> right, exactly. But no, they wanted to focus. They were focused on structured settlements, and that's why they couldn't be fee only. And we felt pretty strongly, and it probably took us a couple of years to actually kind of get there. So probably around 2008, we started thinking, you know, really we need to be fee only here. Not just because that's what we wanted, but also because there were no other fee-only firms in Athens. And so it just felt like the right business thing to do. And so we kind of started talking about it. And I don't know when we actually kind of made that decision. It was probably earlier, I guess, in 2010 that we just decided to kind of part ways. And so... And so we did, and Amicus continued, and that's when we officially filed as Elwood and Getz was in 2010, made that transition. And that's when we hired our first employee also, was 2010. So I want to make sure I kind of got this progression right. So you, you launched in 2006 under the Amicus umbrella. Year one is sucky as it is for pretty much everyone. It's like two or three clients, but getting to do some hourly work for other advisors in Amicus by helping them do their plans. And it sounds like they had some internal thing where like you actually got paid for your time doing the plans for the other advisors in the firm. Yeah, there was, I think it was probably like $20 an hour or something. I don't remember what it was, but just an hourly rate. When you have a lot of time and not a lot of clients, anything that's paid feels really good. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, it, it helped because the, you know, the office we were paying for here was like $500 a month. So, you know, it kind of helped probably offset some of those expenses. And I was 24 at the time. I mean, that's, yeah. So no, you've got that right so far. Okay. And, and then around the same time, like you, you meet the attorney who you end up renting the office space with and start building a relationship there that eventually turns into some opportunity for referrals. And I guess paralleling at the same time, Joe is now Professor Getz at University of Georgia. So like the household now gets, you know, academic salary to balance out startup entrepreneur advisory firm. Right. Yeah. So I think his salary was, well, when we moved here. So yeah, 2006, it was... I think it was 55000 It got you by well enough in Georgia as a mid-20s couple? It got us by. Yeah. I mean, it was tight for sure, you know, but it, but it was enough. I mean, that makes a big difference, right? To have just even some income coming in makes a big difference when you're trying to start something like this. Yep. Yeah. Particularly, I, I guess, kind of the reality that like, barbell balance of extremely unstable starting a business income and relatively stable academia <laughs> income like right granted, not not at tenure yet so we don't quite, quite get the same stability when 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 you're getting started but at least uh uga salary is a lot more stable than trying to get clients going in the first year or two 
No, absolutely. And then we also got married in 2006 and my dad ended up, he gave it, you know, kind of said, well, you can have a wedding or you can just have the money and kind of do what you want to do. So I think it was either 15, it was maybe 15,000 that he gave us. And so we used five to go to Jamaica and get married and the other 10 we used in the business as well. So we had a little bit of, a little bit of kind of startup funds from that. Very cool. I guess the good news of the destination wedding to Jamaica is it keeps it kind of smaller because not a lot of people travel with you to the destination wedding in Jamaica. Yeah, no, we didn't invite anybody. That's kind of awful, right? They give you money for a wedding and then you're like, I'm sorry, you're not invited. <laughs> We're just going on our own. But yeah, no, I just, I have never been a person that likes attention. And so the idea of walking down the aisle was kind of like a nightmare scenario for me. And so anyway, I don't think my parents were all that upset that they didn't, that they didn't get to come. Well, I guess I've, after a lifetime of raising you, I would imagine they, they were not terribly surprised by the Probably decision. Probably not. Like, what do you know? Lindsay doesn't want a big giant wedding with a whole bunch of people watching them walk down the aisle. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I don't think I ever, I guess a lot of people think that women want big weddings, you know, and they might've thought that it was just was never like a topic of conversation at our house. You know, it wasn't ever like, I remember my dad just being like, how old are you going to be when you get married? And I'd say 30. <laughs> that was, that was kind of the expectations for uh-huh. weddings and marriages was that you wait a little while to do it. So I didn't wait a while, but I didn't have the big wedding. So I don't know. So then what happens in, in kind of year two of this? I know by three or four years out, you said you were getting in the traction point that you split off from Amicus, but like where were clients coming from by year two or three? It was this mostly from the attorney at this point or what were you doing to market yourself? A lot of it was from the attorney. Yeah, for sure. I'm trying to think early on our clients and Joe had done a, a seminar at the veterinarian school in town. And that actually led to, and that's maybe the only seminar he's done. I don't, he's maybe done like a few, but, but they were all at the vet school. And so that kind of started a little bit of a stream of incoming clients. And so those were a lot of our early clients were veterinarians from the vet school and then referrals from this attorney that we met. And I think we had one person find us just looking us up in the phone book and he's still a client. I just met with him the other day. Back back when the yellow pages were actually still back around. in the yellow, yeah, where you had to be in the phone book. So uh, I think that was pretty much it. And then by then, probably some referrals had started, and then a few of you know Joe's colleagues from the university would come over, and that was always kind of interesting because you know, I mean, he was working full time at UGA and, st- and still is, but at that time he was you know working towards tenure, and so he really wasn't as involved in the in the business at that point. So, but, but in the university, like he's the guy running and building the financial planning program. So, you know, if you work for the university and you got some financial planning problems, that's probably a good person to talk to, to talk to. And then he would send them to me. And sometimes it's interesting how the university works. Sometimes people who know him want to work with him specifically. And other times if they know him really well, they'll be like, you know, could just somebody else from your team be on my case because they have Mm. a different kind of relationship with him. And so it would go both ways. The department head who hired him ended up becoming a client and they're still great clients and, and good friends of ours. So it was just kind of a very slow kind of incoming of clients. But you know what? I wouldn't have been able to handle like 
a lot at once. So looking back on it, although it seemed really slow at the time, it was probably kind of the way it needed to be just to kind of let us get caught up and kind of get our footing and figure out how we were going to kind of make it work. And so by the time we broke off, I was able to kind of just look up some numbers. We had about 16 million. So between 2006 and 2010, October of 2010, we worked up to 16 million which seems like a really long time to build up to 16 million in assets, but but that's how long it took. But, you know, per proverbial 1% fee, give or take a little, like you were up to $160,000 of revenue. So like there's some positive cash flow coming in. Things are getting going. As I think you said, like not only did you break off, but that was the, the point of hiring the first team member. Well, but of course, I mean, there wasn't really, I mean, yeah, there was cash flow coming in, but it was going back out just as quickly, you know, because you have all of those kind of break off expenses and now you have to buy the portfolio reporting system and hire an employee and do all of these things. So it was still kind of a break even year for us, I think that year, but then, you know, we started to kind of catch up with, from all of those expenses. So, yeah. So you made the transition in 2010 to officially hang your own shingle. And and I think you noted then like one of the, sounds like one of the material issues for you was really wanted to not, not just be a fee only firm per se, but that, that essentially was like, that would be your differentiator in, in your market in Athens, Georgia, because there were no other fee only financial planning firms in town. Right. Yeah. And so did that, like, did that work? I mean, at the point you hung your own shingle and started going to market more directly that we're a fee-only firm in Athens, did that actually help to get the growth going? You know, I think it I think it did. We didn't really do other marketing, which, you know, we could have done other marketing, but really our marketing strategy was just when you have a client come in, just do such a great job for them that they'll feel guilty not referring their friends and family. You know, like just like do such a great job that it's just it's going to be hard for them to not refer people. And when we'd have those, you know, when we'd have the clients come in, that was a big value proposition for us, right? We're saying we're fee only, there's no commissions. And I think that resonated with people because that's what people think about when they think about financial services is just, can I trust, like, can I trust you? Are you getting compensated from this? I don't know how much I'm paying. And so we would just have those conversations about, look, you know, it might look like, you might know the fee that you're paying us and it might feel like now you're actually paying, but you're actually paying less than you were. And we'd kind of do, you know, a fee analysis to kind of show them that. And we'd show that, you know, the fees are going to be less and the service is going to be tenfold. And we've just been able to, to do that and keep that up over the years, which is, which is really important. And I think just, you know, as I know from just life, right, it's hard to get people to follow up and, and give you good service. Like I met with the landscaping people yesterday and I'm probably going to have to follow up with them a few times to kind of get the things done that I wanted to to get done. Mm -hmm. So if you can just be a business that follows through, is proactive, offers good customer service and makes, you know, makes things easy for people, like that's kind of a big deal. So do you have any sense though of like, why does this seem to work so well for you? Because I do know a lot of other advisors out there who will also at least make the case like we give great service for our clients. We do good work for them. I, I think FPA put a, a study out a, a few years ago of surveying advisors of how they differentiate. I think it was 72% of advisors said they gave above average service. 
which of course is actually a problem because you can't have 72% of advisors be above average. But <laughs> I mean, we all take pride in our service and how much we service clients, but a lot of firms don't seem to quite get the referrals flowing. Like I feel like I'm doing all the stuff for my clients, but I don't feel like I'm getting much referrals and business from them. Do you have any senses to like, why did this seem to gain traction for for you? Is there a difference in how you do the service or how you asked or something else? Well, maybe, you know, I, I don't know that, Michael, because I haven't really done it any other way. I mean, when we were at, when I worked at Evenski and Cats, they weren't very focused on the planning aspects. It was more investment focused, which a lot of firms are. And, and we're very much focused on the financial planning and the investment. So, you know, it takes kind of like three meetings really to get a, a financial plan in place for clients. I guess I would, I mean, I don't want to say I'd question the, the advisor's kind of service level, but it is relative, right? I mean, depending on what you're comparing your service to, maybe it's good. But, you know, I don't know. And do you otherwise have a process of, of asking for referrals or nudging clients for referrals? We're in the South. You don't do that. <laughs> we can't, we can't okay. do that. Okay. This might be helpful. Okay. This is kind of something interesting that we do. And this has been my focus from the beginning. So when we, when we kind of started Elwood and Getz in 2010, kind of broke off and Ramica started Elwood and Getz. I remember telling Joe, I was like, look, we are not pinching pennies. Like, I want to do things the right way. If I want to send a client gift, we're going to send a client gift. Like, it's going to be a good one and it's going to be a personal one. And so that's actually something that we do a really good job at, I think, is just our client gifting. If a client gets a new house, if they have a baby, if they retire, if they're sick, if they've had surgery, if there's any occasion for us to send a gift, we try to send a gift and we try to make it a really personal gift, you know, like a cutting board with their initials on it. Or I don't know what else we send, like these little candles that a local candle maker made when somebody becomes a client with the thank you note. We try to make it very kind of focused on the client that way. And, and that might have actually helped over time because I think clients appreciate kind of those little attention to detail and just it makes it makes them feel like we care about their lives which we do but sometimes that doesn't come through when you're super busy trying to get stuff done so i think it's kind of those little touch points that it doesn't feel like it's necessarily business it feels more like a friend sending you something you know we send casseroles to clients that have had surgery we've we've gone to the local bookstore and picked out books and taken it to their house because you know i don't know they they needed something to do after they recovered. And then we also have, so we have like a client reference program. So I said before that we don't ask for referrals. That's, I mean, we don't directly, but we do have a list of about 20 people that we've asked to serve as client references. And so what that means is we just say, you know, sometimes when somebody comes in, they weren't referred from another client, they're not sure what to expect from our process, would you be willing to serve or to take a call or answer an email, just kind of telling them what your experience was? So they're not, they're not giving proactive testimonials, because of course we're not allowed right. to do that. But when clients just say like, you know, is there another client I can talk to to understand, you know, how this works? Like, yes, we actually... We have a list of people that you can talk to. Yeah. Or just bit about the process, like not even about, I mean, you don't, I don't think they ever even ask. Well, I actually don't know what they ask about, but I think it's more about just, can I trust these people? You know, how long have you worked with them? Are they people that 
that I can trust kind of a thing. And so, so then we'll send um, the clients on our client reference list. We send them a holiday gift every year. That's a really nice one. And just say, look, thank you. We know you took time out of your, out of your year to, to respond to some of these requests. And we really appreciate you, you sharing, sharing that with them. We don't ask what it is. We don't ask, you know, if it's going to be a, a good <laughs> kind of reference. Hopefully it is, right. you know. Usually, if they just really want to trash you, they'll you know trash you online and move on, not hang around as clients. Just yeah, to hopefully, your hopefully not development efforts. But it's kind of like those little things that I think make a big difference. You know, like when they come into our office, like we want it to be an experience. So, like I've set it up where we have kind of like spa music playing in the background. They come into the conference room. We have we can make them cappuccinos. We have bottled water. Right now we have like this little kind of card because of the whole mask thing, you know, that's been such a mess about kind of the precautions that we're taking and, and kind of like our policy and on wearing masks and that kind of stuff. So they don't have to worry about that. Interesting. So it's just like a written card in the office, like how our firm is handling the pandemic. So you can feel safe in our space. It says our COVID policy at the top and we just put it, you know, at their place setting so that they can see it and kind of read it before we come in. And we talk about how we've implemented these HEPA filter things in the conference room and we're sanitizing before and after and wearing gloves you know, while we're preparing drinks, if they would like something. And what's the, wait, wait, what's the, oh, I get, I get like sanitizing before and after and, and wearing masks. What's the filter thing? Oh, so just some of those, just those HEPA filters that you can run, HEPA filtration systems. What are they called? Like it's like blue air or something like that. If you go to consumer reports and you just type in like air filter, you can run them and it's essentially like circulates the air and it does like catch you know, the COVID kind of germs, I guess. So, so we leave those running in the meeting rooms. And then, you know, a big thing has been the masks. Like, how do we do it? So luckily our conference room is very long. And so, and we have a very long table. And so we've just kind of positioned the chairs so that, you know, the two people in the meeting with the clients will be at one long end and that the other, the clients will be at the other end. And we just say, you know, because we are, more than six feet apart. If you're comfortable taking off your mask, you're welcome to do it and we'll take the lead. You know, we'll take your lead from that. And so that makes it like less uncomfortable because at first, you know, with COVID, people would come in, they'd be wearing a mask, we'd be wearing masks, but you can't hear, you can't breathe. Like you don't know if the client wants to be wearing the mask or not. And so it was just like very uncomfortable because we couldn't, it would just be a whole conversation about, okay, well, do you want to leave your mask? You can take your mask off if you want to, but then you don't don't really feel comfortable to, and it kind of goes both ways and it's just a mess and awful. So that's why we developed these little note cards that essentially say, because we're socially distanced, we're comfortable with you taking off your mask if you'd like to, and we'll follow your lead, whatever you choose. Because people are so divisive on the issue, you know, about if they should or shouldn't be. And so that was just a decision we made as a firm to handle it that way. So anyway, we try to make an experience. I don't know. You haven't been to our office, I guess, but it's in Athens, Georgia. There's an avenue called Millage Avenue, and it's where all of the fraternities, sororities, a lot of the businesses are on this on the street. And it's these old houses that a lot of them have been redone. 
And so I guess it was about 2013, we bought this house that needed to be renovated with the intention of converting it to the office. And that took a number of years, but we finally did it. And so we've been here for a couple of years now. And and it's we did it on purpose because it's it doesn't feel like a financial planning office. Like it feels like you're coming into somebody's home because it was somebody's home. And we've kind of decorated it that way. Like the kitchen or the break area looks like a kitchen, you know, in your home. And so I think that goes a long way to, to help clients feel comfortable in the space and just feel at ease, you know? And so, and I'm very particular about how things are, are done. So, you know, we'll have like little training sessions on the cappuccino machine and these are the napkins and the cups that you use and this is how it should be presented and that sort of thing. So I think all of those image things go a long way with clients. You know, if, if they feel like you're taking care of the details of your space or how the drinks are served or of the COVID situation, they're going to feel confident that you're taking care of the details in your plan or in their plan. And if some of the details are are not there for the obvious things, then why would they have any confidence that the details are going to be there when you're planning for their future? Yeah, I guess sort of the, like it reminds me of kind of the broken windows policy. Like if, if you, if you address the small stuff and you make it clear that the small stuff won't be small problems won't be tolerated. People get more comfortable that the large problems aren't mm-hmm. going to be tolerated either. I feel like you've got that sort of the negative spin. You've got like whatever the good, the good version equivalent of, of the broken windows policy is of like, you know, if, if we're this focused on how your cappuccino is presented to you, wait until you see what we do with your financial. Problem. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why I get, you know, I get kind of frustrated sometimes when the details aren't the way that I want them. And I'm sure, you know, I try to be nice about it though. I'm not mean, but, but it is important to me that things are a particular way. But uh, again, I think that that's what starts to make the distinction of you know, maybe ad- advisors who feel they they give good service and sort of the maybe the distinguishing factor of what you're doing of I think what you are describing is a level of attention to some of those details that either mm-hmm. some of us just don't focus on as much or don't have the time and capacity to focus on as much or just isn't quite our thing but has become part of your differentiator and how you connect with with clients that you do go to that level of, of depth and detail and how the whole experience is framed up for them. Yeah. And, and not that the other advice, you know, I mean, I know how hard it is to get clients. So it, it could be very well that somebody is doing everything right. And it's just not working out for them in a certain year. They're not getting client referrals. So I don't mean at all to say that there's like something wrong with with their business or how they're doing things. I mean, I, I know how that is because sometimes that's just the case, especially early on. But it's just trying different things. And that's just kind of, that's what's worked for us, I guess, or what I think has worked for us. I don't really know what's attributed to it. It's probably a combination of all of the above, right? But I like to think it's some of my attention to detail that has, <laughs> that has helped a little bit over the years. <laughs> So when you talk about these items, like sending out all of these sort of detailed, personalized client gifts, is this literally like you shopping and picking out gifts? Like, is this one of your natural gifts that you're uh, one of those people that's a really good gift giver? Or is this like a firm wide thing? Or do you have like, you know, greatgifts.com website? Like, how does this, how does this actually come together? Well, so in the early years, yeah, I would do it 
or, you know, and I would have like maybe one of the employees help or whatever. But now I have an assistant, Carol, who really helps me with a lot of those things. And so we'll kind of work together and she'll, you know, I'll kind of say, this is what I'm thinking. Could you help me kind of figure some of this out? Or, yeah, I really like this, but it's not presented in the right way. Can you find a different way to package it? Kind of a thing. And so we've really kind of narrowed it down to where we have like a few different gifts We're not completely customizing anymore. You know, probably the years of going to the bookstore and choosing a few books for this particular client, that's probably not going to happen a whole lot going forward unless it's just a a good friend client. But we do have a series of a few different things. Like if somebody's retiring, well, you know, should we do this, this or that? And then we'll kind of take care of that. And, And we've identified some vendors over time that have been good and present things in a nice way, I think, because presentation makes a big difference, you know? I mean, the gift can be great, but if the presentation isn't there, it's it's not going to be received as well. So I kind of make a big deal about that. So this year, for our, our client reference thank you gifts, we're sending out cutting boards that were locally made in Athens by a family. And so they're just these beautiful cutting boards and can be used kind of as, as serving platters for Thanksgiving or Christmas or any other holiday, really. And so those are going to be hand-delivered or mailed if the client doesn't live in Athens. And they're packaged very nicely. And we have kind of this little write-up about, you know, who did it and how it was, we're supporting a local business, you know, and just kind of the story of, of those. Last year, I think we did blankets and we put all of the, like, their initials on it. So like a monogram for each client. And that that's gotten to be a little tedious. So we're probably not going to make them quite that personalized going forward because I'm so paranoid that the person that I have mailing them is going to screw it up. (laughs) The wrong thing is going to go to the wrong person. So we're going to have to not do the monograms as much for for these types of gifts anymore, um, just because I'm too nervous about that. I don't know. That would be pretty awful though, right? Yeah, like how to take great gift giving and completely crash it. Personalized monogram and then send the wrong monogram. The wrong person. Oh, man. That'd be be awful. Like have nightmares about it. But yeah, we still do that for those state cutting boards. You know, like sometimes if a client moves, we'll give them like a little Georgia state cutout cutting board, you know, that kind of has their initials on it and stuff just to kind of, you know, so they can remember Georgia things like that, that I think they really appreciate, you know. So out of curiosity, is there like a particular one or two gift vendors that are go-tos for you that do this with sort of nice, nice quality and nice delivery? Because I think for a lot of us advisors, like just finding who actually does quote good client gifts is tough. So do you have a, I don't know, a suggestion or two of who you use that you've actually been happy with? Well, it's really hard, Michael, because I think the closest one I found is Olive and Coco and they, you know, can kind of do like a mono, like they'll, they'll send your gift in a little wooden box and you can monogram it with your logo, logo or your name on it of the firm. And, but it's kind of more like foodie kind of gifts, which I don't, I'm not a huge fan of those, but sometimes we will use them for clients that are out of state or just for different things that we need. So we, we do use them a good amount, but you know, I mean the best gifts, I guess I'm most proud of are kind of the ones that I put together myself and that's just so time consuming. 
I mean, it just, I mean, Carol probably spent, I mean, half of her time is probably spent on gift giving. But again, when you talk about like, what are the service differentiators that are really, really differentiated service? Like at the end of the day, not a lot of firms have a, a team member who spends half of their time just doing personalized gifts for clients. And, and that's when you start getting into like, how is this actually different from everyone else? Like that's the part that's actually different. Okay. Well, thank you. That's nice to hear that, that there's something there. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And it's, you know, you just, I'm at the point where I just want to be proud of whatever we do, you know, and I just want clients to feel good about it and to be like, you know, feel good that we took the time to do it. And I think, I think it does make a difference over time. So talk to us about how the firm then has evolved over the, over the past 10 years from, you know, 16 million in 2010. We're now hanging our own shingle. We've survived the financial crisis, which of course was wonderfully timed in the first few years of your being out on your own. You know, you hired the first employee. So I guess like who was the first hire? Uh, like, I mean, just like, what did you hire for? And how did the firm start growing and evolving from there as you came out of 2010 as Elwood and Getz? Right. So yeah, our first employee was Alden Mergenthal who's mar- married now, so it's Schmerling is her last name. She is now a partner, so that obviously worked out really well, thank goodness. She was probably completely overwhelmed in the first year. Like, I'm sure, like, I'm sure she went home crying probably 25% of the time. <laughs> so, I don't know. Well, what was going on that was so overwhelming? Oh, my gosh, Michael. Well, I mean, just, okay. I mean, I'm very particular. You probably gathered that from this call a little bit. And she was my right-hand person, you know? So it was like everything. I was going from doing everything, right? From like putting the postage on the stamp, the paperwork, the planning, the follow-up, the scheduling. Like I was doing everything for everybody to having one employee. And I'd never trained somebody before. So it was like I would just kind of gradually give her things and we were having to, you know, we were transitioning from Amicus to Elwin and Get. So Amicus used Schwab's Portfolio Center, and we were moving to Morningstar. And that whole conversion process, as you probably know, is a bit of a nightmare. And so I had her running reports to reconcile to make sure that, you know, accounts were, you know, the same right. and we're getting the same return in, in both of the software systems. The only positive thing about that was that we didn't have very many clients. So, you know, it's not like <laughs> it's, it's not like it could be that bad, I guess. But for the clients we had, it was very tedious. And so, and it was her, she interned somewhere else in Atlanta, but, you know, it was essentially her first job out of school too. And so I was just kind of having her do everything that I was doing and just kind of trying to gradually give it to her. But I'm sure to her, it didn't feel very gradual. You know, she was just kind of, she was in it and she was in, you know, pretty much every meeting that we did. She would kind of do the notes and and help us with the follow-up and just like gradually, she just kind of really developed into this amazing financial planner. And so we made her partner a couple of years ago. Now she owns 8% of the business. So when, when she started, like, was she coming onto the firm in a path of becoming a financial advisor and like came into a associate advisor role? Or was this just a like, I just need a person to do things. So you're just going to do things and we'll figure this out later. She was out of the program. So Joe, you know, was one of her professors at UGA. And so he knew her from, from that, 
from school and could kind of say she was a good student and I think she'll be really good, you know. So yeah, no, she she intended to be a financial planner and she was within a couple of years, you know. I mean, she I can't I don't know when she started handling clients on her own, really. Gosh, I'm trying to think, but I mean, for sure by 2014, she was she was kind of had, you know, taking the lead on on a lot of client leads or cases by then. So it was a, it was a big progression for her too. And she was with us from the very beginning. Well, not the very beginning, but the very beginning of Elwood and Getz, you know, we'd made it to the 16,000 AUM mark. She was with us from that mark until, you know, now we have about 365. So that's a lot of change that's happened in the last 10 years. So since then we've had, we had one other person who helped a lot. She's no longer with us. And then this year we've hired a bunch of people, but between this year and and probably when she started, the people that are still with us are like Ben and Asia. They're great. I mean, they're just all super talented and just hard workers, you know, and it's so hard to find the right people. And we've had a number of people that haven't worked out. And let's just talk a minute about how awful that can be when you have to fire somebody. And that's yeah. terrible. <laughs> So where have you gone that you've been able to find good talent? Well, so that's, I mean, our UGA connection is great, right? Because we have Joe, who's essentially interviewing them. And and we have more, I mean, Lance and Sworn too at the university that are interviewing them for a few years, but they don't really know that they're being interviewed. So they can kind of like see, okay, who are the students that have, you know, that are obviously talented as a student. My most important criteria is attitude. I don't care if they're a great student. If they don't have a good attitude, I don't want them. Like, I just, I have to have good attitudes in the office. So that's kind of where we start is usually just kind of, you know, are these, do you guys have any star students that you think we should consider for internships? Usually it's an internship first and then it turns into a position. And then, you know, Caleb with NPR, of course, right? He's uh, part of our team too, just kind of on a consulting basis, but he's been amazing. Just we'll be able to send candidates through his process. And of course he hasn't been here since 2010. I don't know. You might remember what year he moved here. Yeah. It was not, it was not long after that. It was maybe 2012 or 13 or something. Anyway. So since then he's been a big help. He does the, the new planner recruiting screening process to try to help figure out who's a which students are likely to actually be a good fit in the planning firm. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's valuable. And, you know, I mean, it's probably even more valuable for firms that don't have access (laughs) to the professors at a financial planning program. And it can be so costly when you hire, you know, I don't know. It's probably, I don't know if it's as bad for everybody as it was for me. Just if somebody doesn't work out, it just, just kind of awful, you know? So, so talk just a little more about like what you do with perspective. Hopefully star students will see, because as noted, not all of them work out. You said you, you tend to start them out as interns. So like, what is that role? How does that work? Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of progressed over the years. So at first, you know, I mean, I wasn't that far out of school, so I kind of, I probably gave them a lot of responsibility and I've kind of always just said, look, you can have as much responsibility as you want. But, you know, you just, you have to let me know kind of, that was like the advantage of working with our firm really, because a lot of times, 
either out of directly out of school or as an intern, you know, you get to answer the phone and that's kind of about it, right? Whereas with our firm, it's always been very hands-on and kind of really getting in there and and doing some some stuff. Of course, it's going to be checked, but yeah, that we we really just kind of let them take on as much responsibility as they want. And so the people that like really have worked out well, Ben and Asia, and well, Alden wasn't an intern. She she just came in full time. So she didn't start out as an intern. Alden and Asia are probably the ones that have the most tenure so far. And then we just hired another intern that we've had for a little while full time, Emily. But they're hard workers, right? They have good positive attitudes. They're willing to kind of do what needs to be done. They're, you know, not too good to take out the trash if that's what needs to happen. They're, you know, they pay attention to the details. They ask questions when they need to. And what kind of tasks and stuff do you give them in practice then? Well, so, I mean, they would do like the first drafts of plans sometimes, the interns we have now aren't doing that. They're doing, they're kind of more focused on helping with some of the paperwork and helping like putting together like the draft of the paperwork that clients need to sign during the transition meeting, you know, the investment proposal meeting. So that's kind of what they're working on for the most part now, just as we've gotten bigger. But, you know, back closer to 2012 to 2014, I mean, they were doing, they were doing the paperwork, but then they would also kind of do drafts of plans or drafts of investment proposals. And then Alden would look at it or I would look at it. And then we'd just kind of, you know, red ink thing and then give it back to them and have them make the changes, which I'm sure doesn't feel very good that you're getting this document back that has all of these things that are, you know, in red and wrong. But it's also a really great way to kind of learn how to write a financial plan. And so are these typically full-time internships, part-time internships because they're still in school or you wait until they're out? Or Yeah, they're usually part-time. Sometimes, I mean, it just kind of depends. I mean, honestly, like if we just find the right person, we kind of figure out a place for them, right? So the interns we've had this past year started out just as like kind of a one semester internship situation, but then that's been extended because they've done a great job, you know? So they've just stayed around and they essentially work part-time. I always tell the students that they need to be able to commit to 15 hours a week because I feel like if it's less than that, they're not going to get as much out of it. And also it's, it's kind of needs to be worth our time and training them right to do it. So so they need to be able to commit to, to the 15 hours a week. And as long as they can do that, you know, if it works out, then they can kind of stay on as part-time help while they're going to school. And then depending on what's happening with the firm, you know, that might convert to a, a permanent position once they graduate. It just kind of depends on, on where we're at. So that's what happened with our most recent transition. She's actually just transitioning from the internship kind of part-time situation. And Monday, she starts full-time. And then you said as, as well that they have to have a, a good attitude that you hire for attitude. How do you actually determine attitude? Well, that's probably why we do an internship first. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We, for the most part, we do an internship before we hire for a permanent position because you can kind of see how people handle stress a little bit, right? And just how they work with other people. And I mean, it just kind of becomes obvious in the office if, if it's going to be a good, a good fit or not. 
Interesting. And I, and I guess one of the, one of the virtues that you do a lot of hiring of students and younger candidates is, you know, if they're getting started, like do an internship with us for a period of time that may have an opportunity to become permanent, like Mm -hmm. is a compelling path and opportunity for them. Right. Just I'm imagining like, you know, 30 something year old career changer, hard to find someone who's willing to take an internship and the possibility this will turn into a job in right. next months down the road. Cause like got kids, got mortgage, need to figure out something a little more directly. But when you hire younger, you, you, you get that opportunity because for a 20 something coming into the industry, like that's a good path. I think it's a great path. You know, I mean, you just have to be able to prove yourself and just kind of show your value and that you're willing to, to work hard and put in the time and, and be a good team player. And so that's really the trajectory. I mean, that's how we found in most of our financial planners at this point came up that way. We do have two recent hires that are working out great as well. They didn't start out as interns. They were, you know, transitioned over from other investment companies. And so we didn't, we just kind of had to take a leap of faith on them, right? We couldn't say, well, we can do a two-month trial period. I mean, obviously, they're leaving their job and have kids to support, so that's not going to work. So it's a little bit more of a leap of faith, but for both of those candidates, we really felt like it was it was worth the risk. And, and so far, it's just worked out really well because they've been, they've been great. And so how did, you, how did you find them? Well, they actually found us, which is interesting because we didn't have, you know, really a position opening out there. But one person, Jordan, moved from or relocated from Jacksonville. His wife has family in the area. And I don't know how he found us exactly. I think maybe they were thinking about moving back to the area because of because of her family. And, and then maybe he did his research and found us, if, if I remember correctly. And so that was kind of, that was a long process because, you know, when he first contacted us, they weren't quite ready to move. And so it was just kind of like. And you basically just get a cold email like, yeah. hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm thinking about coming to the area. Any chance you're hiring? Right. Would you be willing to kind of talk about stuff or whatever? But he, he's been great and he's, he has a great attitude. It's a great attitude and a very yeah strong work ethic, and he gets things done. And um, he just started in February, and then Melissa is the other one, and she transitioned from TIA Cref recently because you know they had that. I don't know how much you know about that about the the buyout kind of opportunity, and they are kind of restructuring how TIA Cref works. And so she was local. And she contacted Joe, I think, through LinkedIn and just kind of, you know, for a conversation. And, and we just really loved her. And she just fits in really well with the team. And so she's a little bit more recent. But she's going to be great, too. Very cool. So paint us a picture of what the firm looks like today. Like, how how big is the firm? I guess in terms of, I don't know if you measure by assets under management or clients or something else. Like, what's what's the what's the size of the firm at this point? So we have probably about 375 households or so, and we have about 365 million. Okay. So t- typical client, almost almost exactly a million dollars under management. Yeah, probably pretty close. And, you know, we have about 11 full-time team members, I think. And so, and we've recently kind of made the decision. So, you know, up until probably about a year ago, 
we were all kind of servicing the clients together and that got to be a little bit chaotic. And so we've, we at that point made the decision that we needed to break into teams. And so we've broken the financial planners into teams. And so each team is made up of two people, a senior financial planner and a financial planner. They all have CFPs and some of them have other designations too, but you know, that's kind of a minimum requirement is that they have something equal to or, or the CFP. And so each of those teams is managing, you know, a little over a hundred clients at this point. You know, the idea is that the financial planners, which is kind of the number two on each team, they'll eventually come up and, and become number, like the lead of a team. And then we'll hire another number two to kind of be trained, you know, in the same way. And so we can just kind of keep creating teams that way as we need to. And then Joe and I, you know, are essentially doing all of the consultation meetings right now. And so we'll kind of meet with the clients and figure out whose team they would be good to work on. And then we assign them to a team. Joe's usually in the investment planning meeting with the team to kind of transition that. And then he'll stay on, you know, in in certain client cases or just as needed, you know, in different meetings as they're scheduled. If, If one of the teams wants one of us in the meetings, if it's an older client, not older as an age, but like they've been a client a long time, then one of us will probably be in the meeting with them. But they've really just kind of taken the lead on on those clients and and it seems to be working really well. So interesting. And and so are you and Joe the senior financial planners on these teams or is your role separate? Yeah, for the no, company, our roles and then there are, are other teams. Okay. Right. So Alden, Ben, and Aisha are the the lead financial planners on the teams right now. And they each have kind of a number two financial planner underneath them. And so they're doing, you know, they're managing the client relationship. And then Joe or I could be pulled in in addition to those two people on the team for certain clients, if we need to, if it's a complicated meeting or if it's just depending on personality or whatever, we're sometimes pulled into those meetings. But for the most part, the teams are handling those separately and we'll just advise on the cases as we need to. Interesting. Interesting. So you you have essentially worked yourselves out of being like the lead advisors that are that are at the center of those client relationships now you're supporting across all all the advisors and firms. I even delegated my parents to a team. <laughs> so I wow. don't have to be their financial planner either. So talk to us just about that transition. Not not necessarily your your parents, but going from you know being the one doing everything because it's you know it's how it starts uh-huh. when you get started from scratch right. to we're going to have we're going to have teams and more teams and i'm going to move myself entirely out of the the client facing roles into handing all my clients off to the teams like i guess what was the vision of making that shift and not having not having or keeping yourself in a in a role where you keep a client base and then how did that transition work mhm I don't know that there was, I mean, I don't, like five years ago, I don't think I was thinking I'm never, you know, I'm not going to be on one of the teams. It was just kind of, it just kind of happened that way. You know, I mean, there's been other responsibilities as the firm grows, right, that have to be managed. And so it just made more sense for me to kind of focus on those things. And so just little by little, and especially as like I've gained more confidence in the planners, right? I mean, 
Alden's been with us 10 years. She knows exactly, she probably handles the situation exactly as I would handle it because she's, we just have that life experience together. Ben and Asia, it's similar. You know, I didn't have as much hands on training with them, but they've still gotten a lot of training from myself and from Joe too, so that they know the way we would want things done. And Alden trained them as well. So, so I think you have to have a lot of confidence in your team to even kind of conceptualize the idea that maybe you don't have to be in all of the meetings. And so it's probably just the past couple of years where that's really happened for me. And then just as you, you know, life kind of changes and you realize that you kind of, you know, need to leave the office probably between five and six to be able to see your your kid at night. There's just, there's more work than you can do. So you just have to be able as you grow to learn to delegate that, those responsibilities, even if it's really hard to do it because it's kind of hard, you know, especially, especially when you first do it just kind of letting go of kind of, you know, how things are handled and, and just checking in periodically to make sure that things are handled the way you want them to be handled. You know, I guess that's kind of the other thing is just monitoring things to make sure that they're working the way you want them to. And, and how do you actually do that? Like, do you, you know, like spot check, call some clients to say like, Hey, just, just to see how, how are things Ben's going? Doing. Yeah, no, I haven't done that. But I mean, I do some of my older clients as in being have been clients for a long time. I've transitioned them to some of the teams. And so when I see them, they'll tell me, you know, I don't necessarily have to ask, but they'll let me know, you know, they're doing a great job. And so that's always helpful to hear. You know, we use Redtail technology as our CRM. And so there's kind of a function where you can go and look at the notes from each day, regardless of who kind of put the notes in. And so you can kind of see what was done and what was happening and and can kind of monitor things that way. We're really, I think, good at utilizing that Redtail technology software because, I mean, I don't know how people don't, but we, we make a big deal about, okay, anytime you talk to a client, whatever, it has to be in there. Just because we have to know, like if somebody's sick one day and a client call, we need to know what's happening. And so we try to make that a big kind of training opportunity with people coming in, just that everything has to be in there. You have to document it because, you know, and it has to be clear what's happening just so that somebody else can follow the, the direction if they need to. So that's another way that I think I can do it. And then also just in our office, and we're growing a little bit now, so we have more than one office. But until last year, we only had the one office. And so people keep their doors open. I mean, you can kind of hear what's going on. You know, even though I'm not in the meeting, I still walk by the meeting and I kind of hear if it sounds like it's going okay, <laughs> you know? So I guess that's kind of how you you monitor that transition. But yeah, at first it was just a lot of, you know, I was the primary person emailing clients. And so then we made a transition and kind of a shift from, okay, Alden, you send the email, but just copy me on it, you know? And so then the email started coming from Alden. And then, you know, a lot of times clients then would just start directing their questions to Alden instead of to me because those emails were coming from her, not from me. So it's just kind of little shifts that way. And that's kind of how the teams do it now as well, you know. So you don't necessarily have like a big grand, like, this is our last meeting together, but you're going to be in wonderful no. hands. I think that would be awful. Don't okay. you think that would be awful to do that? I don't know. As a client, I would feel, 
maybe that's the southern feel a little, I've been feel in the a little south broken up a while. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's such a like confrontational situation. I'm still on their team. It's not like I'm never gonna see them again. I'm still reviewing things, but but yeah, no, I would never want to do that. That'd be that'd be so awkward. So it was more of just like Alden sat second chair with you on the meetings, then she started sending the emails, then clients started emailing her on stuff. Mm -hmm. Then they started interacting with her more Then I'm presuming at some point, just like, Oh, darn, Lindsay can't make the meeting, but you know what? Alden will be here and Alden will do the meeting Mm -hmm. with you. Yeah. Or they just show up and it's Alden and somebody else and they're fine with it because they've been communicating with her. You know, I mean, I don't think we've ever had, there may have been like maybe one or two clients that pushed back on it a little bit, but But for the most part, people have been happy. They just want to know that they're being taken care of and that they're not being forgotten, you know? And so, like, as long as they're getting good service and they feel confident in who's offering that service and that they do have a team that's kind of putting their heads together and coming up with the best options for them, I don't, I mean, I'd like to think that the clients miss me in the meetings, but honestly, Michael, I don't know that they do. (laughs) I think they feel, I think they feel okay about it, you know? But I'm presuming then that means this is like, this is a multi-year transition process for you when you shift some of these because you're, you're doing it so incrementally. Yeah. Well, at first, right. Because I was in all of the meetings and I was the lead person in all of the meetings. So it probably took Alden a few years. Yeah. To transition from those clients, to transition, to take those clients over. And then now we kind of structure it in the consultation meeting where we say, you know, we operate in teams. And so you'll get to know three or four people really well. And, you know, that's intentional because we don't want it to be that you have one advisor and that one advisor happens to be on a vacation when something significant happens in your life. And so you'll get to know these few people really well. Joe or I will be in the first kind of investment planning meeting and we'll introduce you to the, to the new teams. And that's kind of how it works. And, and people have been happy about it. I think, I mean, the people that have moved forward anyway, I guess the people that didn't move forward, I don't know. But we kind of, we explain it as treatment teams. So kind of like in medicine, right? You feel better kind of having a few doctors on your team rather than just one. Right. And so I think, I think that makes sense to clients when we, when we explain it that way, that it's not, we're not like your Edward Jones advisor that's going to just be your, that one advisor. It's, it's a team. You can call the office. We know what's going on. You don't have to be reliant on just one person. And then what did... What did your role become? What do you do, Lindsay? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really. Is there funny. a typical day or a typical week now? Like, what is it? What does that look well, like? Well, you know, consultation meetings. We've just had a lot of them, and I don't know. So that takes up. I mean, we've probably we probably had five in the last week. I don't know. And and consultation meetings for you are. Are those prospect meetings or those like new onboarding client meetings? Yeah, no, those are prospect meetings. Okay. So Joe and I will do those. And those are usually, you know, an hour or two long and just kind of explaining the service and getting to know somebody a little bit and explaining the fees and the treatment teams and that kind of thing. And so that takes up a big chunk because it's that, but it's also the follow-up, right? Like the notes from the consultation meeting, the follow-up, like sending them the questionnaires, getting them engaged in the process. That's kind of all me still. Okay. Which, which essentially means like you're still wearing a big hat for the business development end of getting, getting business in and closed. 
Yeah. And, you know, Joe and I, we're a really good team. And it's kind of nice to have. And I feel really just grateful that I don't usually have to do those on my own. You know, I mean, I feel very strongly that it really nobody should be in a meeting by themselves ever. Like, I think it should be teams of people because number one, it's just like you have someone to hold you accountable that can help you kind of grow as a planner. You can talk about what worked, what didn't work. You can take like breaks from talking, you know, you kind of get, especially in consultation meetings that can just kind of feel like very, just kind of a, a lot of information all at once. And you can just kind of take a moment while the other person's talking. And also like Joe and I have kind of, because we've done, I mean, we've done them together for a long time now. We kind of have our rules down, you know, he gets to kind of be the academic, which he is, of course. And he sounds very intelligent and can kind of, he talks a lot about like the investments and things like that. And I, you know, I'd like to think that I bring a little bit of the warmth and personal touch to the meetings. So, you know, I'll kind of ask about the goals. I talk about the process and we kind of have our different talking points. And so, you know, we can kind of get breaks while we're having one of those meetings and it doesn't feel like so exhausting by the time you get out. And I should say I'm a very strong introvert. So, I feel exhausted after a meeting, whereas some people are energized by that. So that might not be as much of a a thing for them. But for me, that's a big deal. Just kind of having like somebody else there that can kind of take part in in that meeting. So business, so kind of the business development end of things is still a heavy load for you with all the consultation meeting. So that's, that's a heavy load. Compliance. I'm working right now on kind of revamping our compliance program because we're transitioning over to Orion from Morningstar, which has been kind of a big, a big process for the firm this year. And why the, why the transition from Morningstar to Orion? You know, I think Morningstar served us really well for a long time. They were the first one, you know, in 2010, that's the software that we use. So it's been a decade that we've used them. But I think we've just gotten a little bit too big for them. And we need a little bit more, we just need a little bit more service. And really, ultimately, it started because we started looking at different rebalancing programs. And Orion offers a really good rebalancing solution, but it's kind of an, I think it's an all-in-one kind of solution. So we were like, well, if we use them for the rebalancing, we really just kind of need to transition everything. And so we just decided that now was the time to do that. But we just needed a little bit more kind of outsourced kind of help with with that, with kind of all of that. Because you feel like Orion just has more depth of service and support teams? I think they do. I think their client service, meaning like us being the client, I think is just a higher level. The price point's higher. So, you know, I think you're paying for that. And 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to afford it. But... Now, I think we're at a place where it makes sense to just free up as much time for our advisors and also for myself as we can. And so that's why we're making that transition. So anyway, so yeah, so compliance is a big piece of what I do. So I'm kind of trying to revamp that program right now. And what else do I do? I don't know, the client gifting and the all of those little things and just kind of making sure the office is running the way it needs to run and the way I want it to run. And we've been, you know, we just opened an office in Atlanta. And so that's been a big, 
a big thing too, just kind of getting that. We purchased a building there and have been renovating it and decorating it. And so that's taken a big piece of my time as well. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a million little things that I'm not thinking about right now, but you know, the time just goes by somehow. And then client cases, you know, a lot of times, even though we're not in client meetings, advisors come by, right, to talk about cases and find solutions or make sure that they're thinking about things, you know, that they're not missing anything. And so that does take up some time as well, just consulting on those different client cases. So what surprised you the most about building your own advisory business? What surprised me? Well, that's a good question. What do people usually say when you ask that? It's all over the place. (laughs) Lots of different stuff that doesn't turn out the way we expected. What surprised me? I mean, I think I knew it was going to be hard. And like, honestly, I, I mean, I never would have thought that we'd have $365 million of assets. Like, I just never would have thought. We have this joke where... You know, it was when we hit 50 million in assets that Joe was going to start working in the firm full time and he was going to leave the university when we had 50. And so like every, like we hit the bench, like the, the mark and then it's like, well, okay, maybe when we have a hundred, I'll leave. (laughs) Okay. Maybe when we have this much, so it just keeps getting pushed out, which is, it's okay. Because he so appreciates being a professor or because you just end up hiring more people and then you let him off the hook. I don't know. I'm not sure how that's happening. But yeah, I mean, I think it's just, I don't know. I don't know. I think he must enjoy part of it though, right? He must enjoy maybe some of the mentoring. But I, my point to him is there's lots of people you can mentor in the firm. <laughs> like You don't have to give that up. There's lots of mentoring opportunities. But yeah, I don't know. He'll, he'll kind of decide what's best for him, I guess, along those lines. What was, what was the low point for you? Probably, you know, when I had my son, that was a rough year because that was really stressful. Like just, um, and I, we had a couple of employees by then, but I just, you know, and being a first time mom and you probably know this, right, Michael, from, you know, your three babies. Not being a first time mom, but I, well, being being a a first time (laughs) parent, first time parent. Yes. You don't have the mother piece, but being a first time parent, you don't know what to expect. You think you can do everything. Like I thought, oh yeah, I can just continue my life as is and also just add a baby to it. Well, it doesn't really work. (laughs) Right. So, Mm -hmm. so that year was kind of rough because it was like, all of a sudden your priorities are shifted. It's like, you know, before, Like, honestly, up until 2014, you know, I was at the office at eight, probably left at seven or eight, went home, ate dinner, and then worked another couple of hours. And then we did it on the weekends, too. And Joe, you know, mayor, he was working on tenure. So, he, you know, part of his time was really working on university stuff. And I was working on the business. And I didn't mind it. You know, I mean, it it was hard, but it was also kind of like I would get excited about stuff and I'd be, get excited about a spreadsheet or a new technology or something and be excited about right. integrating it in. And that was great. But when I had GK, I came home from the hospital and I had a client meeting the same day. Like, who does that? And why did I mean, why did I think that I could do that? And I didn't really take maternity leave. I brought him with me to the office. And so I think you know, if I were to do it over again, I would probably take a couple months off. But like at the time, that wasn't necessarily an option, right? Because I was still the point on a lot of the 
well, on all of the client cases probably. And so that's when I think for the most part, Alden started really taking on kind of more of a, more of a senior kind of planner lead was that year. And it was, I mean, I don't know what I would have done without her because it was just, it was a lot. So not that having my son was the low point, because obviously he's the high point in my life, but just that transition and not being very, I mean, for somebody that, I mean, I'm pretty smart about most things, but I don't know how I could be so unrealistic about what that looked like. But I think that's probably most people. You just can't prepare for this baby taking over your life. So in retrospect, like, wish Alden had gotten moved in those client relationships before the baby came so you didn't have to do the client meeting the day you came home from the hospital. I wish I would have probably transitioned her earlier on. Yeah. And then also just prioritized myself. And that sounds a little bit selfish, but I would have just said, you know what? I can't, you know, to the client that wants to meet a week after the baby was born, and and I'm kind of framing it different. Joe, like Joe, actually did cover a lot of the meeting the meetings with Alden for me for those first few weeks. So it wasn't at all like external pressure. It was only pressure I put on myself. You know, but this client wants to meet, and I need to be there. And these are the reasons why I need to be there. It's like no, like life goes on without you. Like nobody is, you know, irreplaceable. Like I'm, they they're fine. Or if they need to wait a week, they can wait. Or if we just need to talk on the phone, we can talk on the phone. I think I would have just had my priority shifted a little bit to make that that transition easier. So. What do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you from 15 years ago, getting following a boy to Athens, Georgia, and getting started on a firm? What do you know now you wish you could wish you'd known back then? Oh, gosh, I don't know. That's kind of tough. You know, as <laughs> my younger self, as a young 20 something, I think I was a little bit, I don't know if entitled is the right word, but I think I just. I think I didn't value the experience that I have now as much back then. Like I kind of thought I could do anything a 40-year-old planner could do. And to some extent, I mean, I did do a lot of the things that, that they could do. And it was, it was harder for me, but I, I still was able to pull it off, I guess. But I guess thinking about like our interns or the younger students that come into the firm now, like I see in them kind of almost a little bit of like just disappointment if I'm going to have them work on paperwork or something, right? Like just a little bit of entitlement where it's like, no, I'm studying financial planning. I want to write a financial plan. Well, it's all valuable experience. You know, it's something that's going to serve you well and kind of knowing how to do these kind of foundational things, And sometimes I think that's hard as a younger person to really see kind of the bigger picture. You have a couple of years. You don't have to hit the, you know, let's just take a moment and make sure you have a really good foundation. It's going to make the transition so much easier when you do become an advisor. And there's things that people with experience know that you just haven't had the chance to know yet. And and there just has to be a little bit of like life experience that happens before you can start just doing things immediately. So I don't know. I think that might be something to think about, I guess. 
you know, I think when I was at Evensky and Katz, I was very, I was very much that way. Like I was like, well, why am I not a financial planner? You know, I'm number three in a team, but I have my CFP. Why can't I be doing, you know, it was just a little bit of, just a little bit of entitlement, Michael, I think that I feel a little bit embarrassed about now. <laughs> and so, and that's probably because I see that in other, you know, younger people a little bit. And I understand that, which is why we kind of have over the years given so much responsibility to people so quickly, because I think they do have the ability, if you have kind of the right work ethic to be able to pull it off. But it's also like, just take a moment to acknowledge that, you know, there's a few things that it's okay if you can't do right away and just kind of learn where you're at. And there's plenty of opportunities to learn, even in the paperwork, which people don't like to do for some reason. I don't know. I always found a lot of just kind of comfort in the paperwork because it's the one thing that's kind of black and white in financial planning, mm. right? It's like, it's either right or it's wrong. You right. either signed in the right spot or you didn't. <laughs> like, I really enjoyed the sticky notes and all of that. But yeah, you wouldn't, and I understand that people don't want to be in that position forever, but there is a lot of value in knowing the logistics of how that, how that comes together. So as we, as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the word success means different things to different people. And so, you know, as you build what again, want to objectively call very successful firm starting from scratch, growing to 365 million under management. As you look forward though, how do you define success for yourself at this point? That's a tough question. I mean, it's probably not really the assets at this point, you know. I think it's just learning to kind of live a more balanced life, you know, and and do good work for clients, but also make sure that you're kind of following your own advice. Yeah, so the asset the asset piece, you know, and this was kind of funny actually because until like leading up to this call, I was like, gosh, I guess I should know like how we've grown over the years. Like I didn't know this. I mean, I kind of knew we started at around 16, but like just kind of looking at the trajectory of how the assets have grown. I mean, we're past the point of where I thought we would ever be, so I'm not as concerned about that. I think I'm I'm really just concerned about building something to be proud of. And representing ourselves well and doing a really good job for clients. You know, that makes a big difference in their lives, I think. So being able to help more people and, and structure your firm in a way where you can manage that growth in, in, a, in a good way and in a responsible way so that you can help more people. I love it. I, uh, I can't wait to see where it continues to grow and compound for you from here. You've still got a, a long time horizon yet having unexpectedly grown to 365 million already. Oh, thanks, Michael. Yeah. No, it'll be fun to kind of stay in touch and see how our careers progress for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Lindsay, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate it. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com. <laughs>